Let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 18 this morning. So I've mentioned before um, the uh, interesting relationship I had with Facebook. Where, um, you know, it's, uh, I like Facebook in the sense that it allows me to see what's going on with my family and, you know, my family and stuff, post stuff. And that's the main way I communicate with my wife, Amy. That's how I see what's going on with life is because she likes to post on Facebook. Um, and I, but I, you know, I, I will occasionally, maybe, I don't know, a couple times a week, I'll post stuff on my own Facebook wall or whatever you want to call it. And it's usually something I try to be a little bit playful or point a finger or you know, that kind of stuff. But in a gentle way, I don't, I don't like to use it as a platform to make people upset or angry. And, um, but, I've shared this before, I, I happen to have a relative who is very, very different than I am in terms of our worldview. Um, we kind of grew up together where we would travel and visit them for Thanksgiving every single year in Minnesota. And um, I wouldn't say that we were real super close, but about as close as you could be as cousins who lived six hours away. And um, he, I became a Christian in college and um, very, very conservative. And he uh, was raised Catholic, much like I was, um, would, would say that he's a Christian, but not, he definitely doesn't fall into that evangelical, born-again um, that we would understand to be genuine Christianity. And he um, went to Madison, Wisconsin, very, very liberal university, um, where if you don't come out as an atheist, it's pretty shocking, so that's a good thing, I guess, because he still believes in a God. Well, anyway, he's become very, very liberal in his politics and his worldview and other things. And so he enjoys posting on my wall and my sister's wall and my brother's wall when it comes to things that we might put there that he disagrees with. And he can be very aggressive about it. And um, my sister actually knows him quite well because she lives out in Arizona. And so she would see him on occasion out there. They would get together and... and um, she would say a lot of times the conversations would also go that way where he's just very, very aggressive. And so I'm very tenacious. I don't shy away from argument and debate. I've been growing and learning over the years to try to temper some of that. Um, so my first response to that would be to um, tear him down and to shred him, you know, with logic um, but I have to learn to temper that. And so there's been these interesting cha- uh, debates back and forth between um, him and, and me. And it's always kind of a learning thing for me because I don't know always where that line is. How aggressive do I get back? How gentle do I be? And so there have been times where I've tried to engage him. And um, his style of argument and debate is basically to tell you, you need, that you need facts and figures and you have to provide them, and he'll basically use very condescending language and, and whatnot. And then when you provide facts and figures, he ignores them and moves on to something else and brings up a whole different set of things and, char- and it makes these accusations against you, uses language that's inflammatory. And so having to listen to that and to try to engage back and forth, well, I have to walk this very fine line because he's unsaved. And I, so I want to be a witness to him But at the same token, you want to be able to engage in discussion and debate. And so there's always this thing that goes through my head whenever he responds. And it goes something like this. Do I basically poke the bear and just sort of go at him too to sort of expose 
his thinking or his reasoning for what it really is, because oftentimes it's just it's a diatribe of accusations and falsehoods and things that are that are not true. So do you expose that? You know, I think about Jesus himself talking to the Pharisees. He was gracious, but he just pointed it out. And he used some language at times, whitewashed tombs, you know, that just sort of exposed them for who they are. And so there's, I, I debate this in my head. Is this the appropriate forum for that? And do I just sort of lay it out there? So do I use very strong language? And sometimes I have, where I've just called him arrogant. I've called him proud. I've called him condescending in the public forum because that's exactly what he is. There's other times where I just try to be much more careful. And it's always always a debate. Well, he's actually now sort of, I don't know what it is, but he's made it so that we cannot see his posts, me and none of my siblings. But he can still see ours. And so he can still comment on ours, but we can't comment on his. And there are other times where, where we've tried to engage privately through the messenger so nobody else sees it. And even that is just... He'll contact me and say, I just want to do this in private, and he'll just rip me to pieces. And he he tells me outright that my Christianity is very offensive to him. So I'll basically share the gospel with him, which he's not happy with. And so anyway, I share this because there's this tension there between what I'm going to call judgment, just call him out, tell it like it is, let him be embarrassed, not worry about it. So there's the judgment side. And then there's the mercy side, which is just wanting to say, no, I just, what he desperately needs is, is Christ. And so avoid the confrontation, keep it to just the gospel, don't talk politics, be as gracious and gentle and forgiving as you can possibly be. So there's this tension between wanting to just shake him up and say, well, maybe if I just speak the truth to you and do it in a way that just calls you out in language that's appropriate. But then there's the other side of that, wanting to be much more merciful and gracious and not call out every time he does that. In other words, if he posts something, should I reply? And just say, no, don't want to do that. There's that constant tension. I share that because the passage we're going to look at this morning is filled with the same kind of tension, not the same exact scenario, but this tension between judgment and mercy. And it's because, as we look at it, God, on the one hand, is this righteous, just God. And He has to judge sin. He has to call it for what it is. He's got to apply the penalty for sin, because He is a just God. So, we have, on the one hand, a God who needs to exercise judgment... But on the other hand, we have a God who is loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving. And because he's those things, there's this tension between the need to judge, and I'll even say it this way, the desire to judge. If he's a righteous God, he should desire to judge sin. Much like a judge sitting on the bench when somebody comes in. If he's a righteous judge and loves righteousness and justice, then he wants to exercise that. But then we've got God also saying, but I want to extend mercy because I'm loving and gracious. And a a good judge in our earthly sense would be that way as well. Wanting to exercise both proper justice, but also mercy and grace. And trying to put those two together sometimes causes tension.
So we see this tension between judgment and mercy actually played out quite a bit in the scriptures. We saw that in the book of Judges. They rebel against God and he brings an enemy against them and then they cry out in pain and agony and they confess and then he brings somebody to rescue them and then they start the whole cycle over again. So we see this tension play out. We even see the tension play out in the New Testament with God having to exercise his judgment of us upon Christ but also an expression of his mercy. So we're going to look at this today as we look at the story of David and Absalom and see how this plays out as well. In chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, we find the story of Absalom's death. We're going to actually be in the first, uh, we're going to be in the first 18 verses or so starting out here. As you remember, David and his men, along with their families, were run out of Jerusalem by Absalom. Absalom is now out seeking to kill David. When David flee, or fled Jerusalem, he took refuge in the city of Mahanaim, and it's where he made his headquarters. From there he sends his men out to battle, but with explicit instructions not to harm Absalom. And that's where we find our passage today, chapter 18, or yeah, chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. Let me read those. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the people out, one-third under the control of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai and the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, You shall not go out, for if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it's better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. The king charged Joab and Abishai and Atai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. So David divides his men into all these different divisions into thirds, and basically puts them under the leadership of three men, three commanders. He wants to go out to battle with them, but they're a little bit concerned that if he dies... It's going to be too big of a hit what happens to Israel if the king is killed. So he decides to take their advice and to sit back. But he warns them. He says, okay, when you go out, I want you to deal gently with my son Absalom. Do it for my sake. So basically, Absalom is hands off. Now, Absalom's a commander of the army now that's fighting against David. And David gives explicit instructions to his three commanders be careful with them, bring them back to me. Well, David's men go out and they actually defeat Israel. Let's go ahead and read that. Verses 6 through 8 says, The people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great. 20,000 men. For the battle... There was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now, we know that David has at least 600 men with him. We don't know that he has any more than that. So the fact that they were able to slaughter 20,000 men of Israel tells you the kind of fighting men. We're going to talk about these fighting men in a couple of weeks here. 
Um, pretty interesting story about them. But these guys were, were vicious in a good sense. They were fierce, fierce warriors. And so they go out and they actually defeat Israel. And then something happens to Absalom. Look at verse 9. Now Absalom appeared... Now Absalom, I'm sorry, now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. For Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule was under his feet. Or I'm sorry, while the mule kept going. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Then Joab said to the man who, was, who had told him, Now behold, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise... If I had dealt treacherously against the life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. The ten men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. They took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and erected over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, each to his tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. So basically, we have this story now where Absalom is going along on his mule, and they get stuck in the branches of a tree and the mule just... It's like a cartoon on Saturday mornings. Those You young kids don't know what those are, do you? Saturday morning cartoons. When I was growing up, Saturday morning was cartoons. This kind of sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon where he gets his head caught in the tree, right? What's kind of interesting about this is some... The, the way the text is worded here, some believe that what happened was that he got, got his hair caught in the branches of the tree, which would kind of make a little bit of sense. Go back to chapter 14, verse 25 through 26. And this is a bit ironic. Chapter 14, verses 25, we learn something about him. Chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all, or in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. So here's this guy with flowing, gorgeous hair, beautiful of appearance, and he only cut his hair once a year, which means it was fairly long. There's an element of vanity to that. And so it's interesting that that quite possibly been what led to his demise as he's going through and the branches are there and he gets the hair tangled and caught up in those trees so much so that now he's hanging in this tree basically with his feet, what's that? <laughs> Maybe, with his legs kicking and 
David's men come wandering upon, and oh, lo and behold, look who happens to be hanging in the tree in front of us. But Absalom. I imagine maybe there's a little bit of mockery there to start. We don't really know. But there he is, hanging. One of the captains found him there. He refuses to go against David's wishes. He makes that absolutely clear in the text. It's hands off. He knew that he wasn't to touch Absalom at this point. But he also knew something else. He knew that if he had killed Absalom, and David found out about it, that his own commander, Joab, would pretend like he knew nothing about it. He says he would stand off aloof. And so the the soldier basically says, look, I, I couldn't take his life because David said not to. And the king knows everything, so he'll find out about it. But even if I did, you'd toss me under the bus. So Joab, knowing this, takes matters into his own hands and in direct disobedience to David's command. His direct commander grabs three spears, sticks them through the heart of Absalom while he's hanging in the tree, has his men then go over there and beat him, Then they pick up his limp body, take it deep into the forest, dump it into a deep pit, and then pile a bunch of rocks on top of it. So in spite of David's desire to exercise mercy against Absalom, it appears that God had other plans for Absalom. And it involved his divine judgment. And part of the reason why we know that is because of some of the imagery that's actually used here. There's three, I'll call them pieces of imagery, or three images here in this text that suggest that this was God's divine judgment against Absalom. The first is just the fact that Absalom was hanging in a tree. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall hang all night on the or shall not hang on the night or on the tree all night, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is a curse of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So somebody who was hung on a tree as a murderer, which is what Absalom was, it was a sign of God's curse against them and served as a symbol to all Israel. A man who is hung on a tree is to be cursed or is cursed by God. According to the law, Absalom, in fact, was a cursed man. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 16 says this, Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother, and all the people shall say amen. Well, Absalom did just that, cursed his father David. It also says that one who lies with his father's wife, something that Absalom did, if you remember, did it out on the portico for all of Israel to see. Deuteronomy chapter 27, the law actually says this, Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife, because he's uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say say, amen. Absalom was guilty of both of those things. And according to the law, he was cursed. The image, the symbolism here with him getting his head caught up in the tree and dangling there in the tree matches what we see in Deuteronomy 21. It's symbolism there. God's got a neat way of kind of doing that with things where he uses symbolism and other things to teach us. And so what we see here is a symbolism indicating that Absalom was under God's curse. 
the law put him there, and it was in many respects demonstrated by this image of him having his head now caught and having him left hanging in a tree. The second image is Absalom actually being thrown into a deep pit. If you notice in verse 17a there, beginning of 17, it says that they took him into the forest and tossed him into a deep pit. In the Old Testament, the pit is often a representation of God's judgment. In fact, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Zechariah, even David, all use imagery of the pit to represent God's judgment. In the Psalms, David even likens hell or shale, the place where you ultimately go waiting to be judged, as a pit. And so just this imagery of Absalom being taken out and thrown into this deep pit serves again as an image of God's judgment against him. The third image is Absalom being buried under a pile of stones. You notice that after this was all done, he had all, Joab had all of his men come and grab stones, and they just piled all of these stones on top of him. That's kind of striking because according to the law, the penalty for incorrigible rebellion against a father was stoning. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse, starting at verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son, and who will not obey his father or his mother, and they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall seize him and bring him out of the elders to the city of the gateway of his hometown. There they shall say to the elders in the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men in that city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from the midst of all Israel, and they will hear it in fear. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and is put to death, and you hang him on a tree again... His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. And this we read just a few minutes ago. What do we see here? This picture of the incorrigible son, the penalty, God's penalty, according to the law, was to take that son out and stone him. So what you basically have here is this son Absalom, who is basically rebellious against his father, trying to now kill him and take his throne. And as we look at his death, there's these three pieces, these three pictures, if you will, these images that all suggest that this was God's judgment on Absalom. And it's in spite of David's desire for mercy for his son. Now we've known, we know that there have been times where David was, David loved the law, but maybe he was a little lax when it came to applying the law. Um, and maybe it's because of this tension of wanting to be merciful. But we find here that in spite of David's command that they be merciful, God judged him otherwise and took his life. So what happens after that? Look at verses 19 through 23 of chapter 18. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Please let me run and bring the king news that the Lord is, has freed him from the land of his enemies. But Joab said to him, You are not the man to carry news this day, but you shall carry news another day. However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed to Joab and ran. Now Ahimaaz, the son of Zedek, said once more to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why would you run, my son, since you have no regard for going? 
But whatever happens, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run then, Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and passed the Cushite. So basically, these two men, Ahimaaz and then this unnamed Cushite, both rushed to deliver news of Israel's victory to David. That would be good news, would it not? David's men had just defeated 20,000 men that were out to kill him. So they want to deliver the good news to David. At least one of them wanted to. The other one, it appears, wants to at least talk to David about his son. So David is back at Israel. We're told that he's sitting between the inner and the outer gates waiting for news to come. He's anxious to hear. Look at verses 24 through 27. David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall and he raised his eyes and looked and behold, a man was running by himself. The watchman called and told the king and the king said, if he is by himself, there is good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man is running by himself. And the king said, This one also is bringing good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zedek. And the king said, This is a good man and comes with good news. So David's there waiting between the two gates, waiting for good news to come. He sees these two men running towards him, and he assumes, because they're running individually by themselves, that there's good news. That's what he's expecting at this point. But then David actually learns the bad news. Look at verse 33. Go ahead and jump ahead there. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So David actually learns... The bad news. Now it happens through some things here that we're going to have to deal with. Um, the New American Standard says that David was deeply moved, but a more literal rendering is that he began to tremble and shake here. He learns this news if we, if we look at um, the intervening verses there. There's some things that kind of stand out about it. Look at verse 28. Ahimaaz called and said to the king, All is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. He said, Blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king said, Is it well with my young man or the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab set the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult and I did not know what it was. Then the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Behold, the Cushite then arrived, and the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the, land, from the hand of those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as, young, as that young man. So what we see when we look at this passage here is that David ultimately is devastated because of the news that he receives. If you jump down into verse 4 of chapter 19, you see that he covered his face, he cried out with a loud voice. At this point, he's actually up in his chamber by himself, weeping, crying out, repeating words like, my son, my son, Absalom, my son, wishing he had died instead of his son. He is in deep despair at the news that his son has died. 
In fact, again, it says that he was so grieved that he actually begun to shake. And again, he's doing this in a place where everybody can see him because he's up in his home, which is probably on the outside of the wall. People can see him. It's kind of interesting. Do you notice that David, when the news is brought to him, they tell him that they've been victorious, and David ignores that news and asks about his son Absalom. The first guy doesn't want to tell him. So the second guy comes, gives him the great news about the victory. David ignores that and asks about his son Absalom. It appears the only thing he's really interested in is Absalom. So because of that, he actually gets confronted now by his commander, Joab. This is kind of where the passage takes a turn and poses some questions that are kind of difficult for us to answer. Let's look at the first three verses. Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that was turned to, or I'm sorry, the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard it and said that day, The king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, and people who were humiliated, or I'm sorry, as people who are humiliated, steal away when they flee in battle. And so what we see here is that Joab gets wind of what David has done, how he's responded. And it says, if you look at it there, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. The the people there could be all of Israel, but oftentimes the people simply refers to the army, David's, his men that have gone with him. There's a number of passages through this book that are like that. So it's, it's unclear if this was all the people in the whole city or if it was just his men. But it says that that victory was actually turned into mourning. So they're coming in, these men are returning back to Israel expecting to celebrate and that's just kind of tamped down immediately. In fact, it even says that as they came into the city, they kind of did it by stealth. It means they kind of snuck back into the city. They didn't want anybody to see them. And it says that they did it as if they had been humiliated and had fled in battle. So this great victory where they're supposed to come back into the city, the king would normally sit on the outer gates and wait to get news. And he would wait there because if his army came back, they would then celebrate. And so he would greet them and congratulate them. And then they would come into the city and there would be a celebration. And people would, you know, it's almost like a ticker tape parade. And so that's what these, these men are coming back after this incredible victory. And they get there and they find out that the king's not there. He's up mourning in his apartment. He's weeping. And so they sneak back into the city, basically. Not sneak in a bad sense, but just sort of, okay, quietly. They feel like they come back from a battle that they had been humiliated in and had to flee. And so Joab gets wind of this, and he decides that he's going to go ahead and confront David now. Verse 5. 
Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all all of your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass this night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Those are strong words. He basically accuses David of shaming the men who had risked their lives and saved him and his family. He accused him of loving those who hated him, Absalom, and hating those who loved him, these brave men that went out to battle on his behalf, 600 that faced off an army of 20,000. He accused him of caring nothing for these men. He even said, you'd be pleased if they were all dead and Absalom were alive. He then went went on and warned David that if he didn't go down and encourage his men, they would all abandon him. And it would end up being worse for David than what Absalom had brought upon him. Because at least in that case, he had 600 valiant men that were willing to fight for him. But Joab's saying, you don't go down and encourage these men, you got nothing. And then when this army rises up against you, you're by yourself. It'll be worse off than it was under Absalom. So David does the right thing in verse 8. So the king arose and sat in the gate. When they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, then all the people came before the king. So he finally meets his men, does what he should have done initially. It's not quite the celebration that it should have been, but nonetheless, he does the right thing here. So this actually, this story now, as I look at it, poses some difficult questions, I think, for us. The first one of which... What I want to ask is, was David wrong to mourn the death of Absalom the way that he did? Was he wrong to mourn Absalom's death the way that he did? Not was he wrong to mourn it, but was he wrong to mourn in the way that he did? Was the response from David's men appropriate? In other words, they came into the city there ready to celebrate. When they see David mourning because of the loss of his son now, They were despondent, they were in despair, felt as if they were humiliated. Was that the appropriate response, or should they maybe have wanted to comfort David? I don't know. I don't know more than that there, but it does pose an interesting question. Was their response even coming back into the city, celebrating and not even thinking about the death of Absalom? In fact, one of the guys that came back said, you know, may all your enemies be just like that man, just like Absalom, David. May they all be dead just like him. That's what they deserve. What about Joab? Was Joab right in rebuking David? The only thing he mentions about Absalom here is he'd prefer he be alive and everybody else dead, David. No words of comfort to David here. No, man, sorry your son died. Yeah, (laughs) just my notes here. Sorry I killed him. I mean, this is the man who killed him. And now he's confronting David over sin. The very man that it was, his, was, was his commander. 
commander-in-chief and he disregarded a direct order, he's caused Absalom's death and now he's confronting David over his response to that. Well, David doesn't know that Joab did it. He just knows that it happened. I'm going to suggest this. The answer, I think, to both of these questions is both yes and no. I'm going to cop out. (laughs) Not really. Um, I don't think it was wrong for David to mourn Absalom's death. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. It's his son. And even as wicked as his son was, he was still his son. I think about Pastor Krenz back home had a had a son who was rebellious and um, caused some real tension in the family. And um, even in his adult life, you know, as his son um, had grown, he continued to rebel against Christianity and, and in many respects against his dad. And I just remember Pastor Krenz talking about that and how much that hurt, you know. I mean, he loved his son as much as his son rebelled against Christ and... and um, and in many respects rebelled against his dad because now he wouldn't come visit his dad unless his dad compromised his principles. And I just remember, you know, Pastor Crenshaw seeing the anguish that he felt. Now, fortunately, his son ultimately got saved. That relationship was mended. But um, just the anguish there of just a rebellious son. Well, this is, this is more than that. This is a rebellious son that's now dead. And so I don't think it's wrong at all for David to mourn that, but I'm going to suggest this. Maybe he should have tried a little harder to acknowledge his brave men and the victory that they brought to him, something he didn't do. He was so caught up in his own grief and his own anguish that he didn't look at anything other than his own anguish and his own grief. And he's the commander-in-chief. He's the king of Israel. There's more that's demanded of him for that. And David, by behaving the way that he did, he did, in fact, shame his brilliant, vigilant men. Maybe the response of the soldiers was appropriate, seeing that they had risked their own lives for David's sake. They could have expected more of their commander-in-chief. I don't think there's any question about that. But, and I don't know again, but... They might have understood or expressed a little bit of compassion for Absalom's death, understanding that their commander-in-chief had lost his son. When it comes to Joab, um, maybe his words rang true, but we have to remember that none of this would have happened had he not disobeyed. This is one of those things for me where God may have used a wicked man like Joab, to speak some truth to David. We do find that in the scriptures where God will use unrighteous people sometimes for his purposes. And so in that respect, maybe Joab was right confronting David, but in other respects, <laughs> he was the man that caused it. And we're going to find out later that you know Joab is just a wicked man. He was a brilliant military person, but he was always in it for himself. He always did his own thing. There's at least three occasions that I know of that where he just didn't do what David wanted him to do. But David kept him around because he was a good soldier in the sense that he could accomplish what David needed accomplished. But he was a wicked man ultimately. And he's going he's to die because of it in a future text. So when it comes to Joab, maybe he was right to approach David. But again, um, the whole situation surrounding Joab and everything else is just bad. But I want to focus on something else. I think those are all valid things for us to consider. But I think if we stopped there, that we're going to miss what I think are the two most important lessons we're going to find in this text.
And they both have to do with the gospel. Not shocking. Um, the first is that God is grieved when he judges sinners. And he would much prefer to exercise mercy. Throughout this whole entire study of Second Samuel, we've reflected on the fact that David serves as a type of Christ. It means he represents Christ. Which means that he serves as this image for us. We learn something about Christ by looking at David. As I mentioned in this in the introduction today, that there's this tension between the judgment and the mercy. Do you see how we have both of those found here? God judged Absalom, but we find his mercy expressed in David. This anguish that he feels for having seen his son judged by the Lord. And so you find this tension here. So in some respects, we have God judging Absalom, again, through all that imagery, but then we have the mercy of God expressed, or the mercy of Christ expressed through David's response to seeing his son die. That tells us how God feels when he has to judge. So when it comes to Absalom, we see that judgment. We see in David this expression of mercy that he wanted to extend, his grief as he recognizes that Absalom has been judged. Reminds me of what we read in Genesis chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there with me. Genesis chapter 6. It's just prior to the flood. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. He was grieved in his heart. Why is he grieved in his heart? Because of what he's about to do. He's going to judge mankind. He's going to wipe out all of the population of the earth, except for eight people. And as he prepares to do that, it says that he is grieved in his heart. We see that in God's judgment, the grief that he, that he has when he has to do that. Remember when we studied back in Second Peter chapter 3, where some were saying, where is this return of Christ? Everything's just the same as it's always been. Basically saying, never going to happen. And Peter says, no, God's not slow. We haven't waited in, in Peter's year, probably 30, 40, maybe 50 years. We haven't, we haven't waited these 50 years for Christ to return because God just got a little lazy. No, it's because God doesn't want to see anyone perish. He's patient. It says he's long-suffering. He grieves when he has to judge. We've been waiting almost 2,000 years for, for Christ to come back now because God grieves at the thought of having to judge his creation. And when Christ returns, that's exactly what happens. It is over. People don't get saved at a certain point anymore. When Christ comes back, that's the end of days. It begins right there prior to the, his millennial reign. In fact, you get into the book of Revelation and you see what happens at, when you're going through the, the seven seals and you get to that, that right before the seventh seal and people are on the earth begging to die and they can't. They want the rocks to fall on them, but they, they just, and they cry out, they say, Woe is us, the wrath of God. 
God grieves at the thought of that. Just like he did it pre-flood. And so Peter says, God is long-suffering. He's patient. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What we see here is it simply says that we've been saved because of God's mercy. He prefers mercy. He grieves when he has to execute judgment and not mercy. And I think we see that tension in this passage. I think what we're supposed to see as we look at the story of Absalom is see how God judged Absalom because of his sin. But then we see David grieving because David would have much preferred to see mercy for his son. I think it's a great picture for us of what God thinks of as he has to judge. He takes no pleasure in it. But because he's just, he has to. And when he has to, he grieves. Because he much prefers mercy. The second lesson for us is this. Maybe the reason David and Joab responded differently is because David had experienced God's judgment and God's mercy. Do you remember that? Joab didn't. What did Jesus say about those who experience mercy? They're much more merciful, are they not? That's, I think, why David responded the way that he did. Why was David so forgiving and why did he want to extend mercy to Absalom? Not just because he was his son. David had experienced God's mercy. David, by the law, should have been put to death. Not once, but twice. (laughs) Adultery and murder. And God forgave him of that. Now there were consequences. David knew what it was to experience God's mercy when he should have experienced God's judgment. He wanted that for his son, I'm sure. Joab, he had no clue. In fact, all Joab wanted was vengeance. And you see that, and if we we were to just study the life of Joab, you would see that. He was a vengeful man. Always out for what he thought was right, what he thought was just. There was no mercy ever in what Joab did. He never experienced God's mercy, I don't think. David did, which helps us understand why maybe David responded the way that he did. We of all people should understand God's mercy because we've experienced it firsthand, have we not? We should be grieved when we see other people face the consequences of their sin. We should be grieved when we see somebody die who didn't know Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with one final example. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died not too long ago, Supreme Court Justice. As best we know, she was not saved, did not know the Lord. I'll be real frank, I was appalled at how I saw some of the Christians respond to her death. Instead of grieving, I saw many on social media and other places, even people that I respected that said, oh, well, now she's going to know 
She just got what she deserved. Almost with a certain amount of arrogance or pride. Well, now that she has to face the judge, all those babies she's responsible for having murdered because of her views on abortion, she'll now get hers. Does that reflect the heart of God? No, we should have been grieving for her. Knowing the judgment that she ultimately will face. God's not up there kind of going, I gave you plenty of opportunity, Ruth. I really did. And you just didn't pay attention. Now you're going to get yours, honey. No, I think God grieves over that. Would have rather expressed mercy to her, have her come to know Christ and experience the gift of grace and mercy. I think we get that way sometimes. I know there's times where I kind of, you know, with my introductory comments about my cousin, sometimes I just want him to feel a little bit of embarrassment and get the heat from others for how he thinks and treats and talks. And that's the tension for me. I really ought to be probably doing more grieving (laughs) over where he's at instead of taking satisfaction when he gets maybe embarrassed a little bit or other people then join the thread and start calling him out. That's kind of the way we're built sometimes, I think. But we have to remember that we deserve God's judgment and we've received his mercy. Of all people, we ought to be the most merciful and we should understand more than anyone the grief that God experiences when he has to execute judgment and somebody has refused everything up until that point and now we'll face the ultimate consequence of their sin.